I'm Coulter DeVries, owner of Ranch Investor Advisory and Brokerage Services. I'm an accredited land consultant with the Realtor Land Institute and proud member of ASFMRA. The Ranch Investor Podcast is the most downloaded and informative industry-specific content that intrigues while entertains. Welcome back to the Ranch Investor Podcast. Today we have Sage Askin from Lusk, Wyoming. That's right. Lusk, where's Lusk at? East Central, extreme East Central. Okay, East Central, so the prairie. That's right. Northern Mixed Prairie meets the Sagebrush Step, I'd say. Okay. And today, we're Sage, we're talking about how to start a ranch from nothing. You call it bootstrapping. I call it squeezing blood from a stone. <laughs> Tell me about your story. How did you start a ranch from nothing? Because I get this call a lot. People say, it don't pencil. And I say, I don't give a shit. Figure it out. Other people have. And we have a guest on today who is the other people have. You've figured out how to squeeze blood from a stone and make it pencil. So tell me your story. How'd that happen? Sure. Well, I guess to start off with, I was exposed to this from a not super rare part, and that would be Kit Farrell. That was probably my first exposure to this whole world. And uh, What is this world? Of... I would say niche ranching or on the edge ranching, and you could call it progressive ranching, um, but sort of the fringes and the non-conventional. And so my dad took me to a Kit Farrow deal in Douglas, Wyoming in 1998 when I was nine years old, and I didn't know anything about anything, and it seemed interesting, but I didn't pay much attention from then. And uh, to, to cut to the chase, by the time I went to college, I knew that I wanted a ranch, but I think Coulter, I had it in my head, probably like you did. I, what my picture of a ranch was that I would have some cows and some calves and I'd sell the calves every year and I'd own everything and be my own little empire and and totally independent and I'd get to do that right away. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, through college, uh, I started to run the figures. And, and actually, it's a little side story. When I, when I left for college, I was a senior in high school, and I went into a bank, and I tried to borrow $10 million for a... For a <laughs> Good for you. And uh, he was pretty quick to shut that down, and that started an interesting, I won't say rocky, but kind of an interesting relationship with that, with that banker over the years where I think he never quite knew what to think of me. <laughs> but that would, that would have been a pretty high loan to value. <laughs> That's you, right. Senior in high school, you might have had a... 1982 Ford pickup put up as collateral, <laughs> so you had 2,500 bucks as a down payment on a 10 million dollar loan. Yeah, I wouldn't have had anything. <laughs> I had all the numbers worked out, but I, I didn't know much, and I, I I'm not sure I still do, Coulter. But, but yeah, from there, um, I got really serious about it as I got along in college. I took a lot of credits that were bent towards ranching, and now they have, of course, Montana has a fantastic ranch management program, and a lot of states are starting those. Um, and that wasn't really a thing. I think King Ranch, maybe TCU were the only two in existence and CSU had a, uh, uh, I think, a, anyway, I didn't have that option. I went to the university of Wyoming. It's a good place to go. And so I went for range. I started from the ground up. And so really interested in that. And I still consider myself kind of an ecologist. I, I love all the science. I was moving into an office the other day and I moved all my textbooks and I use a lot of them quite regularly, you know, from, from the range stuff. So why, why go the route of the sciences? Um, 
with rangeland i went the route of finances yep. figuring that my best shot at making it work was understanding finance econ and accounting so you went through it the route of sciences why Oh, I'm not sure I went the right way, <laughs> but that's sort of my heart was at the time. I, yeah. I like soils. I like plants a lot, you know, and I like, of course, I like the animals. I took all the animal science ones just on the side, but I just, I just love starting from the ground up and knowing how the range works. And, and the reductionist part of college definitely didn't help much. I mean, there was a lot of that that was like, for example, we were taught that we were, it was impossible to increase organic matter on rangeland. Basically, in a nutshell, that would be boiling down a lot of a lot of different things. And I'm a big believer in synthesis, so I'll do a lot of that today. <laughs> but but uh, that's not true. That's frankly not true, as we've we've engaged in some regenerative practices that do the opposite. So, but a lot of the pieces of that, how kind of things work, and it has been very helpful. And I'll tell you another place it's been helpful is knowing the Latin binomials of all the plants. Uh, makes me as well educated as most of my peers in the government agencies, if not sometimes a little better educated. And I've been able to, so to speak, speak their language. And and uh, and that really helps. I mean, we can get on the same. There's no, it's a level playing field there. It's felt that way. It hasn't felt like they know stuff that I don't, you know, and that, that's been helpful all the way to the NRCS and, and all those agencies, which we kind of have to deal with on a daily basis. So, so you... You uh, came here to talk about bootstrapping, starting a ranch from nothing. You graduated from college with a degree in range sciences. Why not go work for NRCS? You bet. Well, NRCS would have been the closest because it was still dealing with private landowners, but I didn't really want to work for anybody, Coulter. <laughs> and I know you know how that can feel. So uh, I, I, I've, I've always been independent and uh, I, I just wanted to go do my own thing. Now, Certainly, I'm responsible to a lot of people, and we'll get into that today. So I, I work for a lot of people today, probably way more than just one boss would have been. But to some extent, uh, we do own our own business, and we do own a little bit of land, and we, you know, we can have some of that independence. And I, I see the future as being pretty big on that. So I think, in a nutshell, where we're headed is probably very close to what I had in mind. The path to get there, I never could have told you, <laughs> and I'm still not sure where it's going to lead me tomorrow, but uh, but I think we're on the path to owning and operating our own ranch. It's just a whole different picture. <laughs> 12 years in, yeah, you're building equity. Yeah. You have some financial independence, even though now you're working with a lot of landlords. Yep. So you do have some bosses per se indirectly. Did you think it would take this long? You know, so we formed the company actually this month in 2012, and I was up by myself. Um, so it's this is our tenth year, Coulter. Um, uh, since since technically I formed Askin Land and Livestock LLC as a as a trademarked LLC in the state of Wyoming, uh, 925. That's our birth date. Um, I didn't do anything with that till the following spring. The first revenue, you know, was probably in April of 2013. And we didn't actually sell any livestock. So you get into different deals about where was the starting line on ranching. So like FSA and the government, they count it as being the sales of the first livestock, which really wasn't until December of 2013. So yeah, but but it, actually December of 2014. But in a nutshell, no, I thought I'd move a lot quicker. And I've made a lot of errors and I'll tell you about all the risk. I'll tell you all the stories you want to hear about uh, things we've messed up. I've, uh, we've made a lot of money and looking back, there's a lot of times when I would have done something different and I can promise you 
that I've had a lot of mentors and I think if somebody can engage in the path I have and they have a mentor that's just a steady mentor and you know a dad or a grandpa that that does go a long ways to helping you avoid some of the some of the things I've gotten into so <laughs> so when when you started asking land and livestock 10 years ago which I don't know that's about the time I might have met you around that time um you were literally bootstrapping this uh you were duct taping your boots and I, I don't I don't mean that figuratively I mean that literally literally you had duct tape on your worn out cowboy boots that's frugality <laughs> so did you start with the 10 million dollar loan that you had sought out or did you have to start a little more modest no so my first my first spring I did finally have some land, and that's kind of the first thing. And I, I leased this ranch. Is it? So you started with a lease? I started with a lease. Long-term yep. lease? No, no, a summer lease. Oh, <laughs> it boy. Started, in, started in May, and it was going to be done by October. I didn't know what I was going to do beyond that. I didn't know. I just figured, and, and I, I've mentioned this before. I, when I went to look at that, it was January in 2013, in the, uh, following on the heels of the worst drought on record in that area and that ranch had been scorched and everything i saw was i was driving around on basically bare soil and and rocks and little bits of snow like and like i thought i knew some things coulter but i didn't know anything about judging that ranch i was but i was going to lease it like it didn't it was just semantics to go do the tour <laughs> it was an opportunity a foot in the door and i was going to step out and be a rancher so i leased uh, that part was actually 18,000 acres, and, and at the time it had an associated 11,000 acres. And the business plan that I did take to the same banker was that I would run about 2,500 stalkers for the summer. And I'd done some stocking rate assessments and thought that that's kind of where I needed to be. And, and so I went back to him and I asked to buy those stalkers, which wasn't a lot different. It was a little smaller scale, and I still got equally rejected. And I will mention he's very wise for rejecting me on doing that. <laughs> what he did give me, Coulter, almost as a consolation prize, uh, but it helped me a lot, was I had a paid-for pickup and a Yamaha Rhino UTV, and I mortgaged them against a $17,000 line of credit. So um, once that line of credit was tapped into, which didn't take me that long to spend that money, I, I essentially that would have been a point well, I was at zero <laughs> and from there, but I, but I did have a college education and, and I worked my way through college and paid for that. So there's some things in my mind that were helping all the way and the good Lord has been number one in the whole thing. So, so you, you weren't able to buy the 2,500 head of stockers for this 18,000, uh, 29,000 acre lease. Did you have to find a investor or a partner? No, we didn't partner with anybody. Um, I'm saying we as if I have multiple personalities, and maybe I do here. So, but at the time, it was just your, myself. Your pronouns are they them. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but. Oh, I think and we, Faith and I, think as a unit now. But uh, So that's just what rolls off my your tongue. Wife. But yeah, my wife, wife, Faith. Yep. So how did you stock the place? How did you come up with the stock? Yeah. Place? So the model was leased land and then running somebody else's livestock. So I would call the model at that time custom grazing on leased land, which is basically a margin business. You get paid something. And actually, I'll tell you right what it was. It was 71 cents a head a day. And I was basically paying to the landlord 56 cents a head a day or 55 cents a head a day. My margin was 16 cents a head a day. And that was that. It wasn't great. I mean, it was a glorified cowboy wages. And uh, I didn't know much of the things I've learned since then about business, or I might not have might not. Have, I don't know if I'd do that exact deal today without something 
longevity wise behind it but by golly i was ranching that's all i cared about you got your foot into it you got started and you're at the end of the day you were getting paid for your time that's right you were selling your labor how do you how do you grow up from there how do you build equity how do you get paid for your expertise sure well I'll, do you want to know more about my path or do you want me to tell you what I think is the better way to do it? <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with the path and how sure. you do it different. Cool. Cool. No, that sounds great. Um, so from there, I put another ad out in the Wyoming Livestock Roundup, similar to the Western Ag Reporter. It's the preeminent ag organization, you know, ag uh, newspaper in Wyoming. And I got a few answers. And one couple, um, they're a real generous couple up out of Riverton, Wyoming. They took a chance on me, took a flyer on me, and I went up there. And so that, that fall of 2013, I went up there and I leased the cow herd. And that was the idea, was that I'd have equity building in that calf crop. To be honest, I didn't come out of that with much. I zeroed my line of credit. I, we paid that back. And then I, uh, let's see. I think I bought a horse trailer that summer. And that so that was like $7,000 or something. So that was basically the first year's produce was up $7,000. But uh, when I went up there, I made them a pretty bold offer. They didn't know what they wanted per se. And I think the good Lord placed me at that moment in time because I, I, I know for a couple years there anyway, I was what they needed. And I took on the ranch. They were an aging couple, not interested in doing all the work anymore. And I came in, was willing to live in a one-room bunkhouse there next to their house and just go work all the time. And I was totally happy doing that. And so a 300 cow outfit and the, the good part about that, if you remember the cattle markets in 2014, I, I couldn't have timed it better. And that was just a blessing. I, I, hadn't, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, looking back, it's easy to see that was awesome, but I, I can't promise I knew what I was doing. We uh, sold my first calf crop. Faith and I were selling at the time in uh, the fall of 2014. And I actually trucked them past Riverton Livestock, unfortunately, all the way to Torrington <laughs> Livestock. But... but uh, but I sold them for $3.48 a pound, and they weighed 477 pounds. And so I, I, that was the first, I mean, calves of any, I've sold four or five 4-H calves in the past. But that was the first livestock I'd ever transacted in volume. And at that time, I was like, wow, this works really good. I'm rich. Yeah. <laughs> Can't lose. That's like, right. <laughs> this is too easy. Like, I thought this was going to be hard. And I'm selling, did you say 377 a pound? 348 a pound. 348 Four, a seven, pound. 1648 net. You're just like, pocket. you're just like, <clears throat> Counting your wealth in your mind, being like, man, I could go out and buy a lot of ranches, keep, <laughs> keep doing this. <laughs> That's right. And that was on a, you know, a cow, a cow share deal. He owned all the cows. And I was actually, I did another thing that was pretty decent at the time. I didn't keep a single heifer calf. I just sold them all too. They were 1200 bucks, you know, and, <clears throat> and it just seemed ridiculously high. And I was at that time starting to get exposure to Wally Olson, to, uh, Dave Pratt, some of this stuff, although I'd not yet been to ranching for profit school. Um, but I, I, I certainly, I think, was getting exposure to those people and those ideas. And uh, yeah, so, and then I did another thing. I rolled that into sheep. I'd always wanted some sheep and I bought 300 ewes. I don't, I don't do things part way very well. And so I, I, I thought in terms of load lots. And so I just went ahead for my first sheep. I just bought 300, which I'm not sure that was wise looking back, but, but it, it, it scaled me. I, I think in terms of scale, and I do think those things are perfect still today. So now was that to diversify your portfolio? 
It was. You know, it looked, hedge. to be honest, it was, I was introduced to some of the sell-by marketing principles. And I think that, looking back, that was a pretty good sell-by. I, I, it was an overvalued cattle, like everything. There was no good buys in cattle. And so while my heart was th- saying, buy this or buy that or keep these heifers. My, I mean, picture that, Colter. You know, I dreamed about it my whole life. And that was my first set of heifer calves with my brand on them, right? Nobody else's brand. But I didn't keep any of them. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and it was also as a range management tool. So I wanted those sheep to utilize a different resource, at least in my head. And, and it was partially true on that ranch where I thought the symbiosis between sheep and cattle could get me a little more out of the land unit. And it did. So uh, that worked. Synergistic effects there. That's right. So you have these two leases. Uh, you're bringing in sheep. Um, let me gather my thoughts here. Ray's going to have to edit on this one. Um, oh, the sell buy. Now, what? explain to me what sell buy model is. Perfect. Well, sell buy marketing was invented by Bud Williams. And he's, he's a stockmanship guy. But he was also somewhat of a savant, just a mental savant. I, I think everybody pretty well agrees on that. And he looked at the way the markets are in the United States, and he also studied it in Australia, is my understanding. And, uh, but in the United States, he came up with the idea that it was kind of crazy how we market. Um, we, 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 we take all this risk, millions of dollars on livestock as a commodity, and we, you, know, you can use some risk management and stuff, but those are, those are actually a, a purchase of a hedge that sets you up for more risk in many ways, you know? And, and he was saying the only way to get rid of market risk is to put your sell and your buy the same time frame, same week, same day, same hour if possible. And by selling and buying on the same market, you are no longer exposed to any risk. It's, it's the same market. It doesn't matter. And, and it's just changing it to a different form of usage for a moment, you know, into cash. And, I, I, I can't express it much better than that. But long story short, it's buying undervalued of something and selling overvalued of, of something. So within livestock, I would I, I think we're one of the few in the country that are actively doing this with uh, cow, calf, stalkers, and other segments within the cattle industry, as well as all the same classes in the sheep industry of different breeds and different things. So there's a lot of power there. When I first bought those ewes, we paid $166 a you. At that time, I could sell a bread cow for $3,000. So look at that ratio there. Um, you know, in my head, it was over 20 to 1. Here last year, we did the opposite. We sold ewes for $325 and we were able to buy $800 cows, you know. And so our ratio was, and I often think of it in terms of a load of livestock. That's just a real rancher style way to look at it. Like, what's this load of livestock? Well, I can put 350 ewes on a, on a pot. The same pot will hold 40 cows. And I look at the relativity between those values. And then you have to do the intricacies of what they actually cost. So, you know, and so sheep, if you have 40, you better have 1,000 because you, you kind of need somebody to watch after the sheep and do things with the sheep, you know. So, so there's scale things that come in and, and make the actual decisions. But sell-by marketing is buying undervalued, selling overvalued. And part of the key parts behind it are never selling undervalued if you can help it. And that's what, unfortunately, most conventional ranchers, we get, we get locked into something where our back's against the wall, we're in a corner, and we've got to sell something. And I've certainly been privy to that enough times to 
now recognize it when I'm getting in those scenarios. How do you know what's undervalued and what's overvalued? You bet. Because, I mean, isn't that just the natural uh, intent of any market is buy low, sell high? Yeah, that's the intent of each market. How is this different than any, any type of trading? Totally, totally. Well, for an example, there's, there's, think about what we're producing here. We're producing pounds of animals. And uh, if you can get pounds of animals for cheaper than it costs you to produce those pounds of animals, just at a real relative level, then that's a good deal. That period. You know, it's all based off your costs. And so you have to have a really good handle on your costs. And uh, wouldn't it just come down to return on asset? Is the return on a cow better than a return on a sheep and is that and then are you doing return on two-year-old cows three-year-old cows four-year-old cows or is that what you're analyzing every every month totally so and and it's more weekly and and a lot of that i do analyze all those different relationships um but it changes all the time i would say generally and you've heard these same deals, a cow-calf slash stalker operation. You know, I'm sure you've read the Beef Magazine article. That's the most profitable in the cow segment, followed by stalker guys who are, there's 30,000 of them in the whole country, but they're all like super good or broke. Like that's that's the two <laughs> ends of that deal. Because they're highly exposed. Highly exposed. All their eggs be. are in one basket. Exactly. And then there's the cow-calf, which is the steady eddy. But to be honest... Three years you make money, three years you lose money, four years you break even. You never get anywhere. A strict cow-calf guy with that being his only means of income or their only investment, I, I think you would agree, are not buying ranches right now. No. They, they cannot. No, not. Yeah. And the University of Wyoming has a long-term study of, on profitability from their econ department that shows the optimal... Uh, percentage for a diversified portfolio if you're a cattleman is 60 40 60 base herd your cow calf 40 percent stalkers and that there's a lot that goes into that as you know sage part of that is <clears throat> being able to hedge markets yep and uh, part of that is liquidity for drought, drought. Events. yep in markets and yeah. all the markets whether it's beef markets hay markets leasing markets uh labor markets yep. um less labor goes into stockers. Yep. So yeah, there's a 60, 40 and let's take it back to, you've got these leases, you brought in sheep now. Yep. You're, you're in Riverton, Western Wyoming and Lusk or were you in the medicine? I was only in medicine bow and Riverton at that time. Yep. At that time I drove through medicine bow and it didn't look like a cow could lick grass off the ground. <laughs> <laughs> but you've got these leases and they're what, four hours apart? They are, yeah. Four hours apart. Are you still operating on other people's capital, their land, their sheep, their cows? Yeah, at the that bank, point The in bank's time. operating line of credit? Yeah. Okay, so, yeah. so what are you building here? What are you working towards? Totally, totally. Well, that's a great question. How are you getting ahead? This sounds like toil to me. Exactly, exactly. And, and a lot of that was, to be honest, Coulter. But that, I, I and, and later we'll talk about the model now and how I'd tweak that. But at, at the time, it felt good because of the cattle equity you know livestock was the money at that time and then lamb sales came right back and and so working through 2014 2015 like having some calves to sell some steer calves trying to keep as many heifer calves as i could if it were practical keeping you lambs selling 
you know, weather lambs. That was kind of the model. And then to, to feed the whole thing with cash flow was a random, at the time, assortment of custom grazed cows and stalkers. We've gotten a lot more intentional about what we run, where now, and, and for whom. But, but at the time, essentially, that was producing the cash flow to reduce the, our operating you know, needs. So I, th- I, I tend to think of things in terms of production livestock and cash flow. And that's the two different things. And uh, I did. Ch- it's worth mentioning at the time there in Riverton, I chased a couple direct marketing things. I know you've been down that road, um, and and I chased that pretty hard for about a year and a half. And then, actually, right in there, I was engaged to be married, 2015, and a lot of things happened in 2015. Uh, we attended for one in the winter of 2015. I guess it was into 2016 the Ranching for Profit School. And I attended it with my wife. We were engaged and we came up here to Billings for the Ranching for Profit School. And it was a pretty pretty meaningful time in our lives. Even though I was kind of the young hotshot kid who thought he knew a lot of it, like that put a lot of it together. That was, I remember, I mean, I, my mind was just racing through that. And one of the, one of the things I did there was I was scattered and, and scattered in enterprise essentially. And they, they were really good, our, our table, on grasping that I was scattered and I needed to focus. And we thinned it down to just a couple enterprise. And direct marketing was the one we cut at the Ranching for Profit School. That was the Deadwood? That was the Deadwood at that time. <laughs> and it was the Deadwood relative to the amount of time it was taken and my enjoyment of doing it. You know, Nothing really wrong with that. Some people can do it. It wasn't my thing. So, so and that, that's also, you said 2015? That was 2015, 2016 timeframe. Yep. So that is in, did you attend that because the cattle market was crashing and you didn't know what the hell you were going to do? Um, yeah, totally, totally. Um, the, the, really what happened in the fall of 2015, I was told, notified by my, my landlord there that they were going to sell the ranch. Well, I had my lease of first rider refusal, but uh, I, I didn't... Uh, I don't know why I thought that I needed a first rider refusal because I couldn't act on it, you know. And they sold into what at the time was a pretty decent uh, kind of cattle-centric real estate market. You know, a lot of people were investing money for for cattle ranches, and they had some good cattle ranches, a winter and summer base. And uh, so so they sold, and I, I had to move quick. And so in 2015, I had just gotten engaged, um, and I moved over to Lusk, Wyoming. And my wife now, Faith, kind of split her time between the two just for a little bit and then she more or less came along with me and then we were married in 2016 and yeah that that spring as an engaged couple we went to it because we were in a new ranch and similar deal on a ranch land we didn't know anything about and it was a clean slate so to speak i moved over there with one old trucker you won't find many truckers who'll do this he brought over about 200 ewes and uh 100 heifer calves all on the same truck all together so <laughs> and we unloaded them so that was kind of my deal and we were off to the race we did have a herd of sheep out on the out on the range and that sheep was made up of shares sheep on shares roughly 50 50 and owned sheep and then we just happened to have some at home there so yep. did ranching for profit and you being spread out all over hell because uh, did you did you have a lease in Oregon as well? I went and looked at a ranch there. We've never done yeah, anything. So yeah, then production. You had some sheep in Jordan, Garfield, Montana. That was yep. What was that? A five-hour drive? That was a long ways. Might have been seven or eight. Seven or yeah. eight-hour <laughs> drive. So you're spread out all over hell. 
you're depreciating the shit out of your vehicles, even yep. though you're buying $200 Honda Foremans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you guys have to sit down and think about uh, what's our vision and values? 100%. What are the, what's the goal we're working towards here? And how do we start putting up some professional boundaries? And how do we start dialing it in? 100%. And we work on those still, Coulter. I've had three different iterations of our mission and, and vision. And uh, actually, this last year has been pretty foundational in that, where I feel like it's more clear now than it's ever been. But... Way back when, in my head, I wanted to have a ranch for each of my grandchildren. I didn't know how many were gonna, I was going to have or anything, but that was kind of, I'd heard about somebody who did that, was able to, basically all their grandkids are set up if they wanted a ranch. And I thought, that's cool. That's a cool, you can call it legacy or whatever, and I thought that was cool. Um, I think my motivations have changed a little since then, but the vision out of that was is still real and still really vibrant in my head. Getting it on paper was 100% due to the efforts of the Ranching for Profit School. And they made you think about that. Day one there, almost everybody in that school, I think you'd agree, thinks they're coming to learn how to graze better, you know, or something. Or, 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 and some people are coming there to poke holes in the curriculum. You know, it might be split yeah. 50-50. <laughs> and, and day one, all they talk to you about is people. <laughs> you know, how do you deal with people? And, but it was the best day of education in my entire life of all the years of college and everything, that day is foundational and makes you think through. And then leading right into the numbers was just right up my alley. So uh, I didn't, I wasn't like you. I wasn't wise enough to go to finance or business at all. I didn't have a single accounting class. I had one economics class and that was economics of rangeland resources. So it was, it was certainly neat, same formulas, but applied way differently on a capstone level. And so, um, this stuff now, that's all I think about. All I think about is finance and economics. I mean, that's that's what I do pretty much every day. <laughs> Absolutely. But you also must have a family and a marriage mission statement. Yeah. One, a vision statement for your, your family that's separate from your business. Yep. How do you get those two to coincide? You bet. So it's interesting that you said separate. And, 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 and they are separate in words. But they have to become aligned in purpose so to speak Coulter and and uh, it actually starts with a personal vision and I'd recommend the book Living Forward it's a fantastic book for just personally finding kind of it breaks it into different accounts for your life and what you want to devote time to and it's for you it's not for your wife it's not for your kids it's not for anybody else and so many of us don't ever think about that I mean it's it's such a bad thing to be selfish I think we beat ourselves up and it's almost more selfish in the end by the time we're done with that little d d death spiral. Um, living Forward helps us do it. To, and then we work together. Faith and I have done the find your why and the start with why now. And this was later down the road. But um, those have merged. So we have, we have a family vision for our family business, basically. And, and, and we have some family goals and intentionally, some of those financial goals, you know, it's good to have healthy separation. So we have some, some finances that are separate from the business and they're growing and doing their own thing. And I think the more separate, the better, even non-ag if possible. But, but our, uh, the ranch business, we're aligned on. And in fact, I can't wait to talk to you a little about 
um, that, where we're headed. Because I'm so excited about the kind of the model and the way it's crystallizing and how we're taking this business that we've built as one big mess and we're breaking it out into different things that are each intentional and each require parts of my time. So, Well, let's go there because when it comes to the family mission statement and the vision you have for your, your marriage, yep. husband and wife, for being parents, and uh, the goals and objectives you would set out for personally for your children, uh, there's going to have to be sacrifices yeah. to, to meet the, to accomplish the objectives and the mission of the business. So how are you able to make those work together uh, synonymously or synergistically in your case? You like to work with synergies. Sure. Um, what are you working towards and how do you get that to mesh? You bet. Um, I would I would just summarize by saying we have I've learned things from family ranches. And the, and the few things that come to mind, you'll think of more. But basically, the family values, the lifestyle, the culture, and, and to be honest, the traditions, not so much in themselves, but in how they feel, those are, and, and, and those are why we live in conservative rural America, and those are very important to us. Like, I love going out with my daughter just to go drive through the cows. Like, it's awesome. I love that my little boy last night got on his bicycle, a little three-year-old, and ran the cows out of the yard because they got the gate down at the end of the yard. You know? <laughs> and so that's awesome, right? I also have learned a lot from corporate ranches, and they do a lot of things really right. And they're very ROI-focused, and they're very value-focused, and they don't buy ranch land, for example, that isn't going to work. You know, they, they know what they're doing. Um, and I've learned a lot from different corporate ranches on that realm. So I think of us as having one foot in each of those segments. We, we have a lot of corporate kind of ideas and a lot of that comes from ranching for profit. We're just running a business here and, and an assemblage of businesses. And simultaneously, we're trying for a culture that feels family centric. And, and so that goes over to our employees. We believe in treating our employees, you know, some, some corporations treat their employees better than a lot of family ranches for sure. I would say on the average, but also corporations tend to be the ones that don't, you know, a lot of family ranches don't have employees. So um, corporations, there's there's an equivalent amount that treat their employees like dirt. And we, we treat them really well. I would say we pay above average. We have, we have above average, you know, feeling of being on part of the ranch. And we try to have below average work work hours and try to create a, a work-life balance for them. We're not always perfect, but... Um, and you asked about the contradictions of all this. I think that all these sacrifices are best done quickly. And so I like to just power through it. Now, Dave Pratt has his saying that you've heard, um, which is that to get sometimes you have to, to get where you want to get, you have to have brief moments of unsustainable effort. And I have had several different pulses of that as I, so to speak, level up. And I, I would guess I'll have more of that in the future. But I really believe in taking that edge off for the people that work for us and with us. I, I, that's my job to shoulder some of that and take it off of them. And I also believe in playing to your strengths and not worrying, you know, not trying to develop your weaknesses so much. I, there's a lot more impetus there than there is in trying to get better at the stuff you're never going to be good at, you know. So I have, for example, detail orientation, not my thing. I, I have to have a bookkeeper. Once I have a bookkeeper, it, it aligns things. It brings things in. So there's just a whole list of things like that. So as we've grown more focused, we've realized that our purpose is making the family ranch viable. 
And, and what we're doing, Coulter, is we're doing that by making this family ranch viable. So, so viable, the definition of that would be that first, we, we are fully self-sustained and drawing a salary that we can separate that into a different account. And we pay that every month. Like that's the first part of viability. And pay we yourself feel, first. Pay ourselves first. And we have, we have the ability to do that and not worry and still sleep at night. And one of the second level, you know, parts of that um, for us is, is ecologically, we're big on life. We don't like killing stuff. We don't like C-I-D-E as a word. We don't, we don't like side, you know. So, so, so that means to kill in Latin. We don't do that. So, so we don't spend, on, what that leads to is we don't, we don't do a lot of land management type uh, with, with inputs. Herbicides, pesticides. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have those inputs. And, and then that kind of carries over to the livestock that we manage. We, we're pretty low input on that too, you know, to within reason, to with whatever our, wherever that ranch is. And so, um, and where we're headed for viability is this ranch can produce after tax dollars. So it's paying some taxes, some's left over, that can be re-injected back into land that we then rent to this very viable land rental company. That's the core of what we do. And so, yeah. You have these enterprises. You said an assemblage assemblage of businesses, but they're enterprises. You so they're going enterprise. to they're going to businesses. Yeah, we're we're actually splitting it out. So we do have our enterprises right now are custom grazing and uh, within within Askin Land and Livestock, and this is how we're operating for twenty twenty two. Are we we custom graze, and that could be any species. So that's all together. And then we do um, cow calf. And then we do stalkers, and those are separated so that we know what's working and what's not. And then we have sheep, and that's kind of our enterprises. However, how we're breaking things out is we just formed an LLC, and I'm really excited about it. And this is going to be our flagship thing, and it's called Regen LLC. And we got that for the state of Wyoming. It's pretty cool. I didn't, I didn't, I just signed up for it and got it. So <laughs> I'm pretty excited about that, actually, as we speak. Um, that company is going to do two things really, really well. It's working for the land owner. Now, some of that land is going to be ours, and that's cool. But and, and and a lot of it's going to be other folks's. That's the company that does that, and and it's spending about fifty percent of its time thinking about that. Its revenue is by custom grazing livestock. Now, again, we're our own customer on that realm. We can custom graze some of our own livestock. But at full market value, I've done plenty of subsidization of enterprises <laughs> for two years, three years, just on a hope and a prayer and a whim. And, and a lot of things are possible in ag building equity a little bit in the background. But by gosh, it stinks to run out of cash. And I've been out of cash a lot, Coulter, because I'm too heavily invested into something. And, and that's kind of the ag way. But that's not the right way if you're running a business. Cash, cash. Another Dave Prattism, cash is the business at, or cash is the business as blood is to life, you know, and that's that cash is king. And that's why we, we're always going to have a segment that's custom grazing. And we're focused on that being a very good. So with that company, we should command that company will um, command the highest custom grazing. We have a good reputation for that. We want to maintain that reputation for that. And uh, so we're, we're able to make that a sustainable, viable thing on its own. It's not going to own a lot of things. It's just going to pass money through. Uh, it will employ a lot of our people too. Um, and then, so I'll draw a salary from that. We'll have a totally separate livestock enterprise. And, and on that note, I've made a lot of money on livestock ownership and I've lost a lot of money on livestock ownership. And that volatility, I, with coupled with sell-by marketing, um, 
to take the to take the volatility out. That's what that does. It it takes the volatility out of that to where we can just slowly. It's an it's an investment grade deal. It'd be like trading a stock portfolio within livestock, and we're super excited about where that's going. And that particular thing is going to handle. And it already does a little bit, but we're going to blow the doors off this thing, I think, in the next two or three years where we're going to handle other people's money. So we're really excited about franchising that and growing that out. So. This is Regen LLC. Regen is going to own the land and and employ people. And I'm sorry, let me back up on that. That'll be an edit for him. Okay. Regen LLC controls the land, pays fair market value leases, and revenue is raised through... Um, custom grazing of livestock, period. That's all that does. Asking Livestock LLC is going to own the livestock. It's going to pay a fair market value, full rate, just like anybody else. Changing money from right hand to left. But but there's more to it than that on a mental level um, for those of us that aren't accountants and can't work off a spreadsheet. And uh, totally separate is our land vehicle. And it's, it's its own thing. And I'm hoping to learn more about that from you today. But but that's that's its own business. That's its own portfolio. That's wholly owned by Faith and I, and we buy and, buy and theoretically sell land and capture value thereof in a totally different deal. And these don't support each other; they're mutually uh, exclusive. So, so if uh, if I'm a landowner, if I'm a passive landowner, absentee landowner, what is my incentive to lease to Regen LLC? Yes, sir. So Regen. Oh, a lot of that, I think, is encapsulated in the name. We're very excited about the regenerative ag. Uh, you could call it a movement now, for sure. And as you well know, there's big dollars lined up behind it. I mean, it's a, it's a thing. It's a feel-good thing. Um, ESG is not something I'm in favor of, being, but it's a reality. Would you agree with that? You know? That, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're, uh, climate change is a religion. Right, right. And so... <laughs> So these things, I think movement's a good, a good term for the regenerative movement. The, the thing is that's exciting for me is regenerative invokes that the sum of the parts is greater than them broken down individually, you know. So, so that's exciting. Like it, it, everything I like to think about, synergism, you know, symbiosis, all, you know, bringing things together is encapsulated within regenerative. So for the landlord, we will provide at fair market value. And that's another very real thing. So if a landlord was purchasing a ranch or doing something, I'm totally content to give him the number, him or her the number that makes sense to them. We're very focused on landowner objectives. So each one's on its own. But if they're capital driven, then I'll break it down to his ROI off the rental and what I think will be the projected ROI off of, you know, um, land appreciation over time and potential things for that. We're also totally cool if they decide to sell the land. You know, that's kind of a part of it. Um, we're very focused on every property that we have on making it better. And we're, we're doing that through subdivision, water development, and those things we try to do very carefully and I'm not. I'm sure not perfectly. We're still learning a lot, so that they increase the value of that property, at least from the production side of things. And they do that for sure. They so we we monitor two things. We monitor basal plant cover, which is perennial plants essentially growing on the soil, and bare ground, which is the antithesis of that. You know, the other end of it. We want bare ground going down, basal plant cover going up, and total species diversity. That's the three things that are important to us. And uh, as those things come online, uh, and we're, we're able to do that, we're able to often lease ranches for top 
upper echelon, I would say, for ranch rental. We can't beat out the well-funded, paid-for ranch that's right next door, ever, really. Um, but we offer, I think, a lot more solid business in what we're doing. And I would say we offer that to a landlord a hundred hundredfold because um, we're going to be flourishing in a hundred years. And unfortunately, a lot of these you know, ranches that are, that are in the family deal, they're going to, let's just say they're going to change hands. They're going to be forced to, and we're way ahead of the curve on, on running a profitable, sustainable ranch model. And that's what the business is about. Sounds, sounds to me like Regen LLC. If I'm the absentee passive landowner, I'm the investor. Yes, sir. Which is what this podcast is geared towards is ranch investors hence the name yep (laughs) (laughs) uh you would come in and lease it fair market value whatever that might be that's right but you would also model for me uh what the potential roi is and it sounds like you're providing consulting on how to enhance my asset Uh, beyond consulting it sounds like I'm going to get some data from you. Yeah. As much as you want or require. <clears throat> so soil carbon. Yeah. That's what the future of this. I, that's what we're going to, we're going to tie up, you know, we're going to figure that out too. Oh, so but your real, yep. your real agenda here is to go get the carbon. Is that what you're doing? You're lacing up millions of acres to go I, get I don't know. carbon credits. I, I, I tend to think of it like this. Our, our agenda is to make land better. <laughs> And part of the way to make it better is ecological and part of it's financial. So on every property that we've ever leased, all of the land ownership benefits go to the landowner. So we helped develop uh, the Echola Flats uh, wind farm down at Medicine Bow for our landowner there. And that's what he wanted. And uh, actually got to name that wind farm of silly things. I was just driving around and I gave her the name. I didn't know anything of it. But two years later, that's what was on the paperwork. So, <laughs> Well, you're going to be less abrasive in answering this next question than sure. I am. Because my experience with absentee passive landowners, uh, by and large, is they are very poor to work with when it comes to the consulting you're providing in the data. So I imagine with your basal cover, you're going to be able to tell me what percentage is exotics. Uh, Do we have a uh, transgression to cheatgrass and warm season annuals? Uh, You're going to be able to tell me, is there juniper encroachment? And you're going to be able to provide this immense amount of data and and monitoring reports that should help create effective management plans you can't manage what you don't know right and you're providing this information however in my experience the the people you're providing it to just don't give a shit they're just totally they're just they're just there to look cool on instagram and talk to their friends about so how do you manage, how do you handle that? Well, it's even, I would say it's even deeper than that. We, we have very different types of landlords. So we have the landlord that you just described, and we have the, abs, the absentee landlord also who is um, hands-on and right there. You know, um, so, so that went counter, right, to what I just said. But they like to come there and know what's going on just a few times a year, you know. And, and in this example, Coulter, with leasing any property, the number one thing we do 
and I do right away is to figure out what that person wants. And at that moment, I'm not focused on ourselves at all. We're focused on them. And so almost everybody can't enunciate what they want. It's, I don't, I don't know. You might run into somebody that's a conglomerate and they have a mission focus and they're buying land. I haven't run into that, to be honest. I, I guess Audubon and Nature Conserve, they, they have their things and they're, they know what they're well doing. Well-defined. Right, yeah. right. But a lot of people buying land, they just kind of know they want it. But like you said, that's been my experience. And so it's up to me. That's on me as the tenant to figure out what they want. And, and read it back to them until I really hone in on that. We've gotten better at that over the years. You know, a lot of people that we're working with are, are absentee and they are capital driven. And they look after an ROI. It's often pretty high. It often chases off, you know, it might be 3% or something as a, as a rental. Well, that's pretty high for a production guy. So it, that's fine for me. I'll say, okay, that's your goal. We're going to have to get there. We're going to start at 2%. To get there in three years, we're going to have to do X, Y, and Z, you know, and I'm pretty good at that. And we can, we can come up with a way, a path to it. And then we follow through and pay our bills and you get a couple years into a deal like that. And those are the kind of the deals that last forever from what I can tell. And on the same token, those are the sort of landlords that if I see that, that their land, you know, should appraise for wildly different than what it just was, I'm the one to tell them, I'll, I'll, I'll notify them and say, Hey, it's a pretty good land market, you know. Don't don't let me hold you up. If there's something you need to do, let's just make this a math problem. Let's not make this hurt anybody's feelings. And so I think that's the future where we're going. We're really honed in on. And there's another part of this. I want to be able to do this for other young ranchers, you know, and help them work on those relationships. Because that's kind of deep in my heart. I wish somebody had been there for me to do that. And I'd love to provide that as a service to other people. Um, we, we seem to have a bit of a knack for, for finding ranches to lease. And, and uh, if I can help pass that on, and I think, the next, I think there'll be more people on the land in 20 years. That's kind of a, we'll see if I'm right or not. So I can say all I want, but I, I, it's controversial, so to speak. But I think it's headed that way. So It's hard not to project your values onto their asset, isn't it? It sure is. When you have your range science degree and you're understanding how ruminants can improve the soil hydrology and the organic matter and and the basal cover and also uh, reduce uh, warm season exotics and juniper encroachment, all that, it's hard to not be abrasive and say, do you know, you don't even know what the hell you're doing with your asset. Why, <laughs> why, why did you put all this money here? How do you how do you manage those relationships? Yeah, yeah. I I think that it's it's with kit gloves. It's it's delicately, and it's it's about pinpointing that individual and not not doing much. So for example, if they're a production rancher that I'm leasing it from, for the we don't do anything the first year different. We, we even if even if they and, and we try. Of course, we're not going to do something that we're going to go backwards. That's kind of one of the rules. But we try to at least make it break even with the enterprises that are there. And we may introduce them and make sure that they see what we're doing to polywire or something. But just just so they see what it is. And we're not we're not doing a lot of polywire, but I was just saying that's something that might be novel. That's what popped into my head. Um and 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 I would say there are a few things in life that are black and white. And they're pretty much all moral based and they're they're very spiritual to me. 
a lot I, I see things in shades of gray you know so i tend to get along really well with individual personalities i think that's probably the knack and so um if if somebody's talking hunting I, i'll fall right in line and i'll i'll change everything from our management so that it really fosters their their delight for that ranch and that that's what i think you have to be focused on until you own it you have to be focused on their objectives so you don't have any time for abrasion now i have i have landlords who are who like it they like me pushing the edge a little bit and i've since that and i i like doing it too you know so so we push and they pull and they push and we pull and and we get along pretty good that way you know so it's all about personalities and getting along with the people let's take it back to <clears throat> the family's business uh mission you bet asking land and livestock you bet Are you are you pursuing a model that's a lot? I think it's a uh, is it Alan Williams or maybe Alan Nation? The one third owned, two thirds leased. That was an Alan Nation, Greg Judy deal. Yeah, yeah, one third owned cattle, one third owned land, two thirds lease cattle or share cattle, two thirds lease land. Sure. Does that work? Have you been kind of uh, emulating that model? That's a good idea. I got a lot of ideas from Alan Nation. He's one that I was reading there at the end of college and getting a lot of things. Really respect what he thought. Um, I would say we've modified that only in the respect that we've tried to make it more current and uh, float with the times. So I, I definitely am not locked in. I would say it changes based on your financial wherewithal. So, so there would be a lot of reasons for us to own every animal that we we have we control right um from from many perspectives from an equity and finance perspective there'd be reasons for that that exposes us to more risk than our we can tolerate at this point in our career and so with that we balance that and then the price of money you know well on an operating loan so we we inject enough cash flow out of custom grazing and, and I've been willing to even do custom grazing at more or less a break-even or, or a slight, very little profit so that we could fuel something that's gaining in real equity on the other end, you know. So a year like this and going into the cattle cycle up till, I'm definitely that way. So we've, we've backed off of our custom grazing. We fuel it just enough to make sure that our cows are profitable because there's tons of upside there, right? So we're trying to capture all that upside. So we're doing a big cattle cycle deal right now trying to, trying to build a cow herd. But I would guess in a few years, we won't have that same cow herd. We'll have another class of some other livestock that we've moved that money into. So, Well, Sage, as we near the end of this episode, I uh, want to let listeners know that we have part two with Sage Askin. You can tell Sage has a lot to talk about. He's, he's excited. He's ambitious. He's passionate. And uh, we're going to be bringing him back for another episode. And let's start that next one with, <clears throat> we started this one uh, Starting a ranch from nothing, bootstrapping. Are the question we're gonna you're not gonna answer it right now, but we're gonna leave it hanging out there so that they tune in next time. Is are you buying land? Are you building equity? Are you uh, profitably uh, growing your your assets? Does your balance sheet look a little better today? Was this all for naught? So thanks for coming on, Sage. Uh, how do people look into Regen LLC or Asking Land and Livestock? Well, thank you so much. Yeah, uh, we have a website, AskingLandLivestock.com. Uh, I'm not very active on the Instagram space, but we have uh, Instagram and Facebook also. And, and uh, I'm pretty available via 
cell phone. So I, I really try hard to answer those back. And my my cell phone number is 307-351-4875. And feel free to text me. And uh, I really try hard, especially with other aspiring young ranchers. That's that's who I really, really am passionate about. And I'd imagine where you're located, you'd look at a lease opportunity in Colorado, Kansas, Nebraska, Montana, South Dakota, Wyoming. Sure. Yes, sir. Okay. Yes, sir. Yeah, kind of kind of anything. We, we, we like ecological diversity. So um, what we look at for engaging in a new lease is a few different things, scale and, uh, and actually distance. We like something a ways away from where we're operating so that we can uh, mitigate our drought risk, to be honest. Climactic hedge, huh? Yep. So when you say scale, that's kind of putting up a professional boundary. You don't want a 50 head opportunity. Well, we just can't afford. It's very labor focused. <clears throat> you have some Excuse fixed me. overheads. It, yeah, your fixed overheads. I like a two person outfit, and so a lot of those end up being six, six at least six hundred cow on up is kind of what we're looking at if we're ecologically diverse, like I just said. So uh, with this hedge, um, if it's local, if it's close to us, within twenty or thirty miles, we can look at some smaller things. But but going out. Uh, putting one person on a on a ranch is tough because they don't get any downtime. That doesn't meet our family objectives. So we like we like scale of a little bigger than that. Um, sometimes we can create it. Sometimes we can take a 500 cow outfit and make it into something that's viable for two parties. So. All right. Well, next time let's talk about goats too. Sounds awesome. We'll talk. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks, Coulter, so much. Click subscribe on your streaming platform so you know when the latest episode has dropped. Be the source of knowledge and the maven that other professionals are excited to refer.